Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode. Now, today's crime, I'm not going to jump you right in the middle because that'd be too complex. There's three major moving parts in today's case. We've got Sharon, the high schooler with a ton of dark family secrets. Tanya, the stripper that ends up dead on the side of the road. Sandra, the mom of three daughters that just, she looks like she's always hiding something. There's something going on there. And for some reason, all of this collides and unravels one of the twistiest, darkest, most devious crimes that I have ever in my life read about. I mean, this is absolutely insane. I spent the greater part of today just sitting here, mouth open, thinking about the way I'm going to tell it. Do I start from the beginning? Like, where do I go in with it? Because it's that complex. Like, this is one of those cases that's so complex, but everything at the end is going to make you just drop your mouth. Like, you're going to be so shook and confused. And how did this happen? And what? This almost seems like a movie. If a director came out with this movie, I'd be like, oh, wow, as a true crime person, I would never think that this could happen. But the fact that this is real. This is real. Makes it crazy. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, I just want to do the story justice because it's one that got me super emotional when I was reading about it. So the full sources are always linked on the website that's linked in the description of this podcast. But two books that I want to mention, I just want to talk about it for like a day straight. There is a book called A Beautiful Child. And another one called Finding Sharon, written by the same author, Matt Birkbeck. So where do I even begin with this man? First of all, I want to be his friend. I've never met him before, but I really like him. And he's an award-winning journalist. I actually heard about this case from like one of those ID shows that are like dramatizing the crime. They're recreating it. And it kept referencing this book and he was featured on there. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll give it a read. Maybe I'll get a little more information. No, I was wrong. This book goes so in-depth. I mean, it would not be possible without Nat Birkbeck's book to even talk about this case because of how complex it is. But he was able to interview pretty much everyone involved. So there are there are two books on this case? That's how complex this is. Yeah, there's two books on this case. Wow. And it's not like a repeat of each other. It's him. It's like you need both books. Wow. It's yeah, it's insane. He became trusted friends with like the FBI agents that were on this case. He did prison interviews. I mean, he straight up quit his job to write these books. Yeah, he quit his job because they wouldn't give him time off to write. And he was like, "Okay, well, I think that this case needs to be shared." So he quit his job, which is insane. So, I mean, with most cases, I know you guys like a good deep dive, but it's it's like practically impossible to do on a podcast. So, I encourage you to go read these books. I mean, really good. Side note, he also does a lot of really admirable work in trying to expose the racial discrimination in the housing industry. So anyway, obviously I'm a fan. You can find his full list of work at mattburbeck.com. But anyways, let's get on to it. Maybe I was drawn to this case because a lot of it takes place in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Now, in Atlanta, Georgia, there's this high school student by the name of Sharon Marshall. From the outside, she's kind of like the perfect kid. No, really. She really is. Like, she's a model student, had an IQ of 132, mostly A's, perfect grades in geometry. On top of that, she had this beautiful blonde hair, these magnetic blue eyes. I mean, her goal in life was to go to Georgia Tech on a full scholarship and then work for NASA as an aerospace engineer. What kind of high schooler says that with their full chest? Okay, when I was in high school, I don't know what I wanted to be growing up. I definitely didn't think true crime podcaster, but here we are. And people said that she had this energy about her. I mean, she was so bubbly, confident, mature for her age, all of these things. 
but teachers at her high school started noticing a couple of just a couple of strange details about her for one sharon always had to be home at 4 30 p.m does not matter if the whole school lit on fire if something if she was getting proposed do you get what i'm saying she had to be home at 4 30 p.m even when if she's getting proposed to exactly in high school wow <laughs> okay his sarcasm is thick today and so the teachers would ask her like well, what is the reason like why are you in such a rush you're not done with a b c and d yet and she'd say no 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 i have to go home and i have to cook dinner for my dad okay that's a little weird for a freshman in high school but maybe that makes sense maybe maybe that's just how she's raised and then sometimes during these parent-teacher conferences where Sharon's single dad would sit there and, you know, talk to the teacher, Sharon would just never talk. She wouldn't even fidget. It just didn't seem like the actions of a teenager. I mean, she didn't fidget. She didn't blurt out random things. She just sat there completely still. It was just a little bit eerie. Sharon also moved around a lot. So she went to four different high schools in one year at one point. Her dad, Warren, was a painter. So teachers all, they try to play it off as, because he's a painter, Maybe sometimes there's just not enough work in the area. So they keep moving around. Sharon's mom died when she was young. So she's just being raised by this man. And he seems, I mean, yeah, okay, he seems really strict. But it seems to be working because look at Sharon. She's got these amazing grades. She's beautiful. She's polite. She's put together. She's so much more mature than any other high schooler. It seems to be working. And I feel like the red flag that we see in a lot of um, like these cases is, oh, they're completely isolated. They're not allowed to do much. But that wasn't necessarily the case. So Warren, Sharon's dad, would allow her to go to these camps, student council camps, where she would spend the weekend on like local college campuses. And that is where she met Jennifer, her best friend in high school. They were inseparable the minute that they met at that camp. I mean, it was like sparks were flying. Sharon told Jennifer that her mom was killed in a hit and run accident. And now it's just her and her dad. Jennifer opened up about her family. And she was just so enamored by the fact that Sharon was so smart. Like all of the other girls that Jennifer met, they wanted to talk about boys. They're like, what what kind of makeup are you wearing? But Sharon, she wanted to talk about like spirituality, religion, politics. I mean, this girl could read. She was always reading some sort of magazine, some sort of novel, some nonfiction book like she was non-stop reading and so the whole camp they're inseparable but on the last day they're crying they're saying goodbye like they live an hour away from each other when you're in high school that's a long distance relationship so they're like how are we ever gonna meet again and jennifer's like well easy give me your number and i'll keep in touch like i'll call you and maybe we can have some sleepovers oh uh jennifer i can't give you my number what do you mean you can't give me your number like your house phone number just give it to me i'll write it down I'm not allowed to give you my number. What? Your house? I'm not like a stranger. You can give me your number. Um, I just, I can't. So Jennifer is like, this is awkward. What's going on here? This feels uncomfortable. I'm not like an old creepy dude that just came up to you. I'm your friend. Mm-hmm. So she says, okay, um, that's fine. Here, I'll give you my number. So she writes it on a piece of paper, gives it to Sharon, and they say their goodbyes. So for the next week, Jennifer's just sitting by the phone for this call. I mean, this is her new best friend. She wouldn't even stop talking about Sharon with her family. She's like, mom, dad, you don't understand. She's my best friend for life. We're going to get married together. You know, we're going to have kids at the same time. We're going to live on the same block. Like, she's my BFL forever. You don't get it. Like, I've never met a friend like this, mom. So after a week, they start wondering, okay, well, maybe Sharon lost your number, sweetie. Like, I'm sure it's not that she doesn't like you. It's that she probably lost it. So Jenny, she starts, you know, freaking out, scanning through the directory of the camp, find Sharon's number. Yes, it's in the directory. So she, you know, calls, ring, ring, ring. 
Hello? Sharon, it's me from Student Council Camp. I can't believe I found you. How did you get my number? Now, Jennifer was like, this is weird. She sounds angsty. Like, she sounds almost angry that I got her number. If anything, I was expecting her to be like, oh, my God. Uh, I went through the directory. Are, are you okay? My number wasn't supposed to be listed. You're not supposed to be calling me right now. Huh? And in the back, Jennifer could hear this man's voice just screaming his head off. And Sharon keeps saying... Screaming what? Just like, what are you doing? Dad, it's, it's a friend that I met at camp. It... How did she get our number? I I didn't give it to her. I I swear. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then they hang up. Whoa. So Jennifer's sitting there like, what is happening? Five minutes later, she gets another call from Sharon. She picks it up like, hello? Are you okay? Wait, Sharon, call back. Yeah, and Sharon says, hey, sorry. I'm just not allowed to give out my number. My dad was upset, but he, he gets it now. I'm glad you called me. And so for the next couple of hours, I mean, they just hit it off like nothing happened, like back to the camp days, just doing their thing. And eventually, after a couple of weeks of talking on the phone, they start making plans for Sharon to come sleep over at Jennifer's. And Jennifer's parents were excited. I mean, they had heard so much about Sharon and they kind of had this thought of like, well, unlike Jennifer's other friends at the time, Sharon's smart. She talks about college. She talks about her career, her life. Maybe this determination is going to rub off on our young daughter, you know, Mm -hmm. good influence so the whole family they meet jennifer fisher's parents and the marshall family they meet warren drops off sharon and says i'll pick her up tomorrow morning and he drives off Mm -hmm. now jennifer's parents had a really good impression of you know warren at first and sharon as well and they just have a nice sleepover they do whatever you do at sleepovers you go to a mall because you're in high school right and some strange things started happening at the mall sharon starts pointing at someone and says oh my god jennifer look that guy is so cute Jennifer's like, well, that's fine, but that's a girl, Sharon. Oh, what? Oh, sorry. I'm nearsighted, and my dad doesn't like it when I wear glasses. And we can't afford contacts. So that's just a little bit strange. It's one thing if you can't afford contacts, but the statement of my dad doesn't like it when I wear glasses, it was just a little off-putting. But they proceed on, right? The very next morning, Warren comes to pick up Sharon, And at this point, he asks Mr. Fisher, Jennifer's dad, if they can speak in private. Okay, a little bit strange, but they go off to a room. And when they come out, Jennifer's mom is confused. Like, why did he need to talk to you in private? Mm -hmm. And he says, Warren Marshall wanted to borrow some money. We just met him yesterday when he dropped off Sharon. We we literally (laughs) just met him. Yeah, he said he's doing like a big painting job, but he doesn't have the money for the supplies. I mean, I turned him down, but... It's a little strange, right? They didn't say how much he's asking for? No. I mean, that's a little strange, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's strange, but but Sharon's a good kid, you know? He raised her right. Maybe he wouldn't have asked unless he was, like, that desperate. It's hard being a single parent. So with this, like, logic, they just kind of put it off. Yes, it's very weird. But because Sharon is just a perfect child, Mm -hmm. maybe this guy wouldn't have asked them unless it was that bad. So the next visit, it happens again. Warren asked for money again and they shut it down. So this whole thing kind of freaked out Jennifer's parents. And this actually caused Jennifer's mom to be coming closer to Sharon because she felt so bad. I mean, how hard must it be for this girl to grow up with no mom, just a dad? I mean, this girl needs a mom. For example, like Mrs. Fisher, she would put the dinner out and there would be this fresh plate of broccoli, fresh broccoli, not even steamed. Okay, that's not that good. And Sharon would get so excited. Like, I've never had this before. 
you're in high school you've never had broccoli and she's like no i never had it and she would just eat up the whole plate of broccoli like this is the most delicious thing ever and so they were a little bit confused huh okay i mean i guess maybe the dad is too busy to cook maybe he sucks at cooking maybe sharon is defending for herself at this point feeding both of them and they would ask like oh your dad doesn't like broccoli anytime they brought up warren sharon would look nervous she would start stuttering a little bit she would hold her hands tightly together but they didn't they didn't think anything was that bad he just seemed super strict So finally, after multiple sleepovers at Jennifer's house, it was finally time for Sharon to invite Jennifer over. Like, come sleep over. Yes, my house is like an hour away, but come, come, come. I'm so excited. Jennifer's begging her parents. They were a little bit uh, reserved about this. They had their reservations because they don't really love Warren, but they finally gave in. They dropped her off and Jennifer just jumped out of the car. She was so freaking excited, rushed in with Sharon. And Sharon's room was exactly what Jennifer had expected, just filled with these fluffy stuffed animals, these beautiful doll figurines, and just stacks of books. Like any type of book that you can get, the room was covered in books. Exactly what Jennifer was envisioning. But there was something strange. She's like looking through the room, corner to corner, her eyes are scanning around, and she notices that Sharon doesn't have a door. What? It's just a curtain, not a door, which is, you know, kind of traumatic for a high school girl. And she looks around. None of the rooms in the house have a door. They're all curtains. So Jenny, coming from this much more privileged background, she didn't really care. She assumed that maybe they just didn't have money for doors. That was it. And she didn't think about it. So they start hanging out and Warren comes in and says, hey, do you guys want me to take you for dinner? There's this nice diner down the street. Let's go. So they pile up in his car and a few strange things start happening. The whole car ride, Warren keeps telling Jenny, you're so pretty, you know, you're so pretty, just like Sharon. She's like, okay, this is a little bit weird, but like, thank you. And he says, hey, guys, I have a good idea. Why don't we stop by Peachtree Street and make fun of all the prostitutes, the sex workers? He used the P word. Sorry, I had to. Um, Not that I had to. It's a quote. And so Sharon's like, Dad, they don't work there anymore. They're on Stewart Street. And I, I don't really think that's a good time. Can we just go to, can we just go eat dinner? So the rest of the car ride, they listen to music, they get to the restaurant, and they start enjoying that dinner. But then Warren has another great idea. This this idea would be too good for the girls to pass up. Why don't I take you guys dancing? What? Dancing? And so they're freaking out. I mean, Jennifer was so excited. She was never allowed to go to a club before. She was only 14 years old. So she's like, not only am I going to a club, but I'm going with my best friend and her dad is letting us go. We don't even have to sneak out. This is crazy. So she's like, yes, let's go home. Like, what should we wear, Sharon? How should I do my hair? Do you have makeup? Like, let's do makeup, Sharon. So they go home. They start getting ready. And the whole time, I mean, Jennifer's head was spinning. She just kept saying, your dad is so freaking cool. She's going through the drawer. Sharon's like yeah pick whatever you want to wear and she she notices a couple things in these drawers lingerie g-strings thong bikinis like crotchless panties I mean things that definitely a high school kid should not have especially drawerfuls but either way Jennifer is like too excited okay she gets dressed up in these tight little skirts put on their makeup and they jump into the car like whoa but instead of a nightclub they actually end up at this very seedy tacky bar just filled with old men like creepy looking old men so warren drags them to the bouncer whispers into his ear and they're allowed in i mean these kids look 14 
What the heck is going on? So Sharon's like, come on, let's dance, let's dance. And Sharon starts dancing to the music. Jennifer tries copying her. I mean, Jennifer had practiced dancing in her room before, but now she's like in a full-on public place. She's She feels awkward, but Sharon was really good. Sharon just looked like she had done this before. She was so confident, and all these old men would come and like try to dance with Sharon, and she would brush them off. Overall, the night was really fun, and Jennifer was so thrilled that they did something so crazy. Does she know that what she did was wrong? Or, like, is she going to tell this to her parents? She, I don't know. She might have until this next thing happened. So they get they get into the car. They're just like, oh, my God, Dad, that was so cool. Like, Warren, oh, my God, right? And they get home, and Warren's like, okay, girls, get ready for bed. And they go into the room. They start taking off their dresses, putting on their little pajamas because they're 14. And as they're changing, Jennifer's like, wait, where did you get all this stuff in your drawers? Like, all the like, lingerie and stuff. Oh, my dad lets me have it. He even buys it for me. You seriously have the coolest dad. And so, I mean, because she's 14, you know? So Jennifer's like, that's insane. My mom won't even let me buy skirts. So she's like, that's so cool. And all of a sudden, the curtain flings open. Warren is in the room, face red, screaming bloody murder, waving a gun at the girls' faces. And Sharon looked terrified. So Jennifer is like, oh, my God, I'm going to die today. Like, I'm only 14 and I'm going to die. And he keeps screaming, I told you guys to get to sleep. And he starts pointing the gun at the girls. And then all of a sudden he starts busting out laughing. And he just leaves. So the next morning, Sharon tells Jen, like, are you okay? I'm sorry about last night. He's just joking. (laughs) It's just something that he does sometimes. He, He just likes to threaten people with guns. So Jennifer gets picked up and she's she's not telling her parents because she knows that they would cut off this friendship with Sharon and with Warren. But she promised herself, I will never go to Sharon's place ever again. Sharon is still my best friend, but her dad is crazy. So the Fisher parents, Jennifer's parents, they're forgetting all of these strange things Warren did too. They're forgetting about him asking for money, all of these things. But one day they couldn't ignore it anymore. The whole family, they go out to the mall one evening and when they get back home, Sharon's dad's car is parked in their driveway. So Jennifer's like, what? I wasn't expecting Sharon to come over. Like, I'm so excited. She runs out the car. Mom, they're not in the car. Well, that's strange. Maybe they went on a walk because they were waiting for us. But then they go into their house and Warren is inside sleeping on the sofa. And Sharon is reading a book in their living room. What? So before they can say anything, I mean, Sharon and Jennifer, they run upstairs to hang out because when you're kids, you have no idea what's going on, I guess. And Warren explains, oh, your garage was open and I had to let myself in because my back is killing me, you know? Painting is not an easy job. My back hurts so much. So they stay for a few hours and then they leave. Now, Jennifer's parents are confused about this. This was the most uncomfortable experience they've ever had in their life. So they go room to room checking, did he steal something? Mm. Like, what's going on? But nothing was taken. Okay, well, maybe maybe that is the truth. Maybe his back was just hurting. But we are so good about closing our doors, and we even set the alarm on, I'm pretty sure. (sighs) That's so weird. But again, it was like too late to do anything because the Fisher parents were attached to Sharon at this point. I mean, especially Jennifer's mom. Like, I think her maternal instinct was just kicking in overdrive. Like she saw this young girl who's Jennifer's age, grew up without a mom. And she just felt like maybe I can fill that void. She's such a good kid. I mean, there was just too strong of an attachment. And Warren just happened to be this weird inconvenience. 
for their family. That was about it. And on top of that, Sharon was a really good friend. She would always encourage Jenny, like, you got to study harder. Don't let yourself down. Don't worry about boys. You got to do this. Do this for yourself. I mean, her entire goal was for her and Jenny to be successful. And finally, the call came. Sharon got into Georgia Tech on a full scholarship. Wow. So she calls Jennifer, like, screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, they're so giddy. Wait, so at this point, they're already seniors? Yeah. Oh, wow. So pretty long friendship. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And Jennifer's screaming up and down for her. But suddenly Sharon just like her whole attitude changes. But I don't know if my dad's going to let me go. What are you talking about? You have a full scholarship. What what would be the reason he'd say, no, this is literally your dream. He's going to be so proud of you. What the heck? You don't get it, Jenny. I, I cook for him. I clean for him. Like I do everything for him. But if I go to tech, who is going to take care of him? So Jenny is thinking, okay, she's just being a little bit paranoid. They hang up. And that night, Sharon calls again and says, Jenny, I told him and he's going to let me go. So she's so excited for her friend, right? But at the same time, at Sharon's school, a rumor starts floating. Sharon had been gaining weight on her face and specifically her stomach. And the counselors were worried, is Sharon Marshall pregnant? And they kind of hold off on it. And then months pass and it was it was too big to, you know. There was an elephant in the room. The counselors knew it. The teachers knew it. Most of the students knew it. So they bring her into the counselor's office and they ask her right before graduation, are you pregnant? And she just broke down and admitted that she was pregnant with a student's baby by the name of Curtis. And they call up Sharon's dad. Warren comes. He's pissed. She was pulled out of school, pulled out of graduation. Her tech scholarship for Georgia Tech was turned down because apparently the rules are you can't be pregnant. For the Are full you scholarship. Serious? Like she can still go to Georgia Tech, but she won't get her scholarship. And they can't afford it. So at that point, she just disappeared. Which you would think that if you are pregnant, you would need this more. <laughs> but they're like, we're evil people. Nope. So she just disappeared. Wait, so who is Curtis though? Is anybody just like a random kid from school? From the same school? Yeah. And nobody asked Curtis? I mean, I'm sure there was like a whole process, but it's not that important to the whole case, right? So she just kind of disappears from the school. And Sharon calls Jennifer and says, I need to say goodbye. What? What are you talking about? You're not going to tech for like at least a couple months and that's really close to me. What are you talking about? Can I just come over? So Sharon comes over just super pregnant. And the whole Fisher family was just so shocked. So she's telling them, like, it's fine. I, I'm going to go to college maybe, not this year, but maybe next year. I'm, I'm going to put the baby up for adoption. I already talked about it with, my, um, with everyone. And yeah, it's going to be fine. But the thing is, we're moving. We're going to move to Arizona. I know. I love Atlanta, but I, maybe I'll come back one day. But I just need to go to Arizona with my dad now. He said the dry weather is better for his back. Maybe I'll even go to Arizona State. Who knows? So they're just crying and crying and they promise that they'll stay in touch on the phone and just bawling their eyes out and they say goodbye. But they did stay in touch. You know, Sharon wrote this eight page letter to Jennifer about the birth of her first child, a son. The labor process was a wreck. It was wild. And they gave him away to a couple in Texas. They're both doctors. They have this beautiful house. I heard that that he's going to get his own personal nanny. So Sharon calls Jennifer and says, can I please visit again? Just for like a week. Can I stay with you guys for a week? 
yeah, of course. Like, we're so excited. So they pick her up from the Greyhound bus from Arizona to Atlanta. And during this week, it's it was just like old times. You know, they went to the malls. They went to the movies. They did all these fun stuff. And on the last day, Sharon asked, Mrs. Fisher, can I talk to you in private? Yeah, sure, sweetie. What is it? Do you think I can stay here and live with you guys? What? I just don't really like Arizona, and I, I love Atlanta, and more importantly, I, I love you guys, and I, I just thought maybe I could stay here. W- well, you can if your dad says you can, you know, because technically he's still your father. We can't just, you know, have you stay here. I can't really ask him, and isn't it my decision anyway where I go? Sharon, is there something going on? If there is, you can tell us, you know? You can be honest with us. If you say something, we can help you through whatever it is, yeah? And all of a sudden, she just says, never mind. I mean, I like Arizona. It's not that bad. Here's the thing with the Fisher parents. They loved Sharon enough to take her in. They just couldn't without Sharon telling them something or without Warren's approval. Because, I mean, legally, that's just one phone call to the cops, right? So all they wanted was either your father approves or you tell us something is going on at home because they were kind of suspecting something. Then we will fight with CPS. We will fight to the death for you. But Mm -hmm. you have to tell us. And she didn't. So they drop her off at the Atlanta airport and everyone was just so emotional. And the parents are just trying to convince each other like, nope, we can't we can't let her stay because that would be illegal. She just has to tell us. So right before she gets on the plane, they ask her. She's not of age yet. No. Okay. So they ask her, Sharon, you're sure there's nothing you want to tell us? And she's just sobbing. And she smiles at them. Thank you for taking care of me the past week. And she leaves. So in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, we've got Tanya. They're all going to come and collide into this big mess, okay? So in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, two men are driving down a road towards a motel, and they swerve a little bit off the road because there's like an object. What is that? I think that's a high heel. Oh, well, someone had a wild night. And they keep driving a little bit more, and in their rearview mirror, they see what looks like a body. Not a mannequin, but straight up a body because it seems like the body is moving. Like the arms are twitching, the legs are moving in different directions. Let's pull over. They get closer, and it is a woman's body. So they immediately call 911. It's about 1 in the morning. Hello, 911. I think there's been a hit and run. There's a woman on the side of the road. She's still moving. Like, you need to hurry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. The police arrive, and they start surveying the scene, like crime scene analysis. The woman's young, probably in her early 20s. No ID on her. And around her, there's just a bunch of things laying around, like two containers of milk, Pepsi, bread. So they come up with this theory that she was listening to her headphones. They found like a CD player nearby, went to the grocery store and was walking back in the direction of Motel 6. So she's probably staying there, but a car had hit her from the back, rolled on top of the car, and the car left. So this is like a hit and run potential what's going on. They bring her into the hospital and she just kept saying, daddy, daddy. So it's like, okay, well, who's her dad? Um, She had scratches, faded bruises all over her body. Her brain was severely bruised. Like things were not looking good for her. She had major head injuries, no broken bones, no major skin rashes, cuts or blood. So these are things that you would see in a hit and run because you get road rash, you get all these things, but none of that. And who is this woman? She has no ID. So the next morning, her husband comes to the hospital, Clarence Hughes. That's my wife, Tanya Hughes. She's 23 years old. We came checked up in that motel with our young son, two-year-old Michael, 
And then she went to go get milk the night before and never came home. I fell asleep. They're like, you fell asleep while your wife was outside just walking around Oklahoma City? Yeah, I, I fell asleep. And later, truck drivers told me that my wife was probably at the hospital. Like someone fitting her description was at the hospital. I hit and run. So the police come to ask these questions, you know. Tanya's 23, two-year-old son named Michael, married to Clarence Hughes, and she was a stripper at a club called Passions. Now, the whole time that the doctors and the police are interviewing Clarence, he just does not seem emotional at all. Like, doesn't even care. He's just standing there like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Never try to, like, hold his wife's hand while she's in a coma on the bed. Like, none of that. And finally, he turns to a nurse and says, can I get a pen and a piece of paper? Ooh, and maybe some clear tape. What? Okay, uh, sure. So they bring it to him, and as he's leaving, he slaps a sign on the door. No visitors. Okay, this is bizarre. This is so bizarre. She, he made a sign for yeah. the hospital room? Yeah, no visitors. The, <laughs> the nurses are like, what the hell is going on? So the police are trying to take into Tanya's life. Like, is this a hit and run? Is this a targeted crime? What's going on? She's working at the Passions Club. She worked seven nights a week, which is a lot. So most of the girls at the Passions Club, they would work three to four nights because, I mean, that's the only way to keep your sanity at a place like this. That's what they said. But she worked seven nights a week clarence would call every single hour to see if she's still there i mean all the girls there knew that tanya's husband clarence was a shady dude he would sit outside the club all night till her shift was over and right at the end she would get into the car and they would see him visibly see him in the car asking for her to hand over the money if she did not make at least 200 dollars a day she would come to the club the next day with fresh bruises it got so bad that if she didn't make $200 that day, the girls would say, here, let me just pay the difference. Let me just give you the difference. Oh my God. And she would reject every single time. She never accepted it. So they just sat there day in, day out saying, you can do better, Tanya. You know, we've all been there. We've all been in these toxic. Some of us have been in abusive relationships just like yours. We're not judging you. We can help you. I can't. I can't. He's going to kill me. The relationship was so bad that Clarence, her husband, forced her to get these massive implants that the girls described as, and I quote, almost comical. They were so big that they just sat like watermelons on her chest, and she was really petite. She also was forced to get these butt implants that just looked really unproportional to her body. But her personality was, I mean, amazing. Everyone loved Tanya. She never drank. She never did drugs. All she did was care about her young son, Michael. She would, in between dancing on the stage, she would knit sweaters for Michael. Aww. One of her coworkers, Connie, kept telling her, you need to leave him. I can help you. I can't, Connie. I, I tried twice and he always finds me. Besides, he's friends with cops. He's got guns in the house. He has connections and I can't risk Michael getting hurt. So the girls, they started taking it out on Clarence. Every time they saw him in the parking lot, they said, Tanya should leave your sorry ass. They would scream at him and he would get out the car and scream back. If she ever left me, I would kill the bitch. He would beat her with glass bottles anytime she didn't do anything that he wanted and around the time of the hit and run, Tanya had started dating someone else, a client by the name of Kevin, and it started getting serious. Kevin told her, I can take you and Michael out of state. I have friends and family. We have connections too. We get out of Oklahoma. He doesn't have connections out there. So two weeks before the hit and run, I mean, everyone noticed a difference in Tanya. She was acting different. She was like someone on a, with a mission. She was smiling more. This was the real Tanya. Everyone was like, this is what Tanya would be 
if she wasn't in this abusive relationship. This is her. So she had never taken a day off, right? But out of nowhere, Tanya's like, I got to take a day off. And that was the day that she was nearly killed in that hit and run. So that day she wasn't working. Yeah. And something happened. So everyone in the club, I mean, when they got word that she was involved in a hit and run, Clarence, it's got to be Clarence. He found out that she's leaving. They try to kill her. So they drive to the hospital, see Tanya, and they see that stupid no visitor sign. But they're like, no, I don't give a fork. And Connie just rushes in there. And the nurse realizes that Tanya is reacting to their voices. Mm. This is shocking. This is a good sign. And the whole time, Connie's like, listen, nurse, you better come over here. Connie is just a coworker. Yeah. Connie's like, listen, let me tell you what's going on with Clarence, because I bet you it was Clarence. I bet it wasn't an accident. She keeps telling the nurses things. And the nurse is like, yeah, I know. But I mean, the police are getting involved, but it's hard. We don't really have any proof as just nurses. So maybe you should talk to the police. Connie leaves the hospital that day and gets a call from Clarence. Just straight up bitching her out. How dare you visit her? Like nobody's allowed to visit her. You hear me? I'm going to get those bitches at the hospital all fired. Anyway, Connie, do you want to buy some furniture? Because we're moving. In the same phone conversation. In the same phone conversation. So Connie hangs up, immediately calls the hospital, like, keep an eye out. He's selling his furniture. Something weird is going on. He might try to kill her, okay? And out of nowhere, the next day, Tanya's health started deteriorating. And they call Connie and tell her that she's not going to make it. What happened? We don't know. I mean, she was doing okay, but her vitals started failing. There was nothing we could do. She never came out of her coma. So the nurse tells Connie, just one more thing. We tried, but maybe you should too. Try calling CPS. Tanya's son, um, he wasn't talking or crying. He didn't act like a two-year-old. He smelled like urine. I think that something's going on. Okay. So they do an autopsy on Tanya, and it showed that she had multiple medical procedures done. Uh, breast implants, butt implants, severe head trauma. Her brain was swollen and bruised. The result of death was listed as violent, unusual, and or na- unnatural death. Manner of death, homicide. Because, I mean, hit and run can be a homicide. So the CPS take Michael away for temporary foster care. He's not doing well. When he gets to the foster care family's house, he just starts slamming his head on the ground. Just on his hands and knees, slamming his head on the ground over and over and over again. Now, the Bean family, Mr. and Mrs. Bean, the cutest name ever, right? They had fostered more than 60 kids, and they had never in their life seen one like this. Michael just did not stop crying, did not stop screaming. He didn't speak a single word yet, didn't know how to talk or walk well, made groaning noises or would growl at people. He also didn't eat well. In his sippy cup, it was just Pepsi. Like he was drinking Pepsi as a two-year-old out of a sippy cup. Like you shouldn't be drinking Pepsi out of a sippy cup. So Michael's taken away into foster care. Passions, the club, paid for Tanya's funeral because apparently Clarence did not want to. So the strip club paid for her funeral. Clarence shows up to the funeral with two off-duty cops. Are you kidding me? And he tells everyone, oh, these are my bodyguards. They're like, what the fork is going on? (sighs) Clarence goes up there to give a speech. Tanya had secrets that will never be revealed. And it would be best for all of you to just let things be. Bury her and let things be. Do you hear me? Let it be. Now, the funeral was paid for and attended by mainly the Passions employees. But Clarence, on this rant, he just starts ranting about how strippers are sinners. He says, you guys are living a sinner's life and will spend eternity in hell burning. Like, what is happening? What is happening? 
all of you didn't really know her and you don't know me but you took away my son despite all of this how dare you how dare you people they're all just sitting in shock yeah clarence leaves with his bodyguards because he's a man on a mission he was he was getting something eighty thousand dollars to be exact eighty thousand dollars in life insurance policies that he had taken out on tanya's life just months before her hit and run called the insurance company gave them his social security number and they told him all right well your money's on your way instead they called the u.s marshal's office the insurance company yeah hey uh we think that this man killed his wife to get insurance money and I just looked up his criminal record. He's a federal fugitive. He's wanted from the law. He is freaking wanted? Yeah. So they're like, what the fork is going on? So you're telling me Yeah. it's the insurance company that... That be solving crimes. Finally. <laughs> yeah, they be solving crimes. So based on what? They're just like everything of this... His social security number. Uh, give okay, it to them okay. and they're like oh well i mean we're not just gonna give out eighty thousand dollars to this fugitive i see so they call the u.s marshal's office like you'll never guess what happened oh man i love that the greed is getting back to him yeah and then in north carolina we have another story this is the last one before you see how they all come together okay north carolina a woman named sandra brandenburg was going through a rough time okay she had gotten pregnant straight out of high school her parents start noticing her belly what the fork's going on she ends up confessing like yeah i met this guy named cliff sivakis i feel like i'm saying that wrong and we're gonna elope so they get married but sandra's just way too young for all of this she's 19 she gives birth but she wants to experience life she starts cheating on cliff because he's in the military and she divorces him and he's just begging her please just stay no no, i'm moving on moving on to my next guy dennis brandenburg before the divorce is finalized sandra actually gives birth to another daughter so at this point she's got two daughters and then quickly another daughter so sandra now has three children an unstable relationship and she turns to sex work and with her fourth child she's she wasn't becoming a better mom i mean at this point she starts dabbling in drugs it's said that she gave up her fourth child in an adoption a son named philip but nobody really knows not even sandra's brother she was just really secretive about everything And eventually, CPS come and they swoop up her daughters. She was devastated. Please, let me have my girls back. Please, please, please. And at one of these, um, like when she was soliciting for sex work at one of these truck stops, she meets a truck driver by the name of Brandon Williams. And he was nice. They start hanging out. He tells her, well, with my income and my help, we can totally get your kids back from the state. So after two weeks, they get married. And sure enough, the state gives them the kids back. And Brandon got along well with the kids, especially the eldest, who was like four. Her name is Suzanne. She was smart, happy, I guess. Just one of those kids. And one day, Sandra goes to the grocery store. She gets arrested. She wrote a bad check. So she gets arrested for that. Now, there's allegations that the police also arrested her for solicitation for sex work. But when she gets out of prison, she realized that Brandon had left and taken all three daughters so she starts panicking he had cleaned out the place she finds her two youngest daughters they were dropped off at a home like at one of these uh foster homes but suzanne and brandon had completely disappeared what the fork so she tells her family and they're like well you gotta file a police report for whatever reason she never filed a police report 
Yeah, probably has no trust. Right? So Sandra, I mean, her brother Jim starts, which is Suzanne's uncle, starts looking for Suzanne. But Sandra had always been very evasive about what happened. Never really told them what happened. There are allegations that maybe she had sold Suzanne. But the thing is, this isn't the story of three different women. This is the story of one woman. What? Suzanne Savakis, the kidnapped four-year-old, Sandra's daughter, would then become Sharon Marshall, Jennifer's best friend, the smart high schooler who got into Georgia Tech. Then she would become Tanya Hughes, the loving mom found on the side of the road, murdered. And what makes this even crazier, there's another person. Brandon, the man who kidnapped five-year-old Suzanne, uh-huh. is the same as Sharon's dad, Warren Marshall, and is also Tanya's husband, Clarence. Oh my God. And none of these were his real name. His real name is Franklin Floyd. You look shocked. <laughs> wow. Holy cow. I was like, my mind was falling apart. I thought uh-huh. the guy was the same guy. But different woman. But different woman. I thought he was just a shit dude that just doing these no now it didn't go down like this if i were to tell you this story in chronological order it would be a show because the way that i mean you see in the book because matt birkbeck does a really good job like running you through all of even the f it's so fascinating the way that the fbi came to all these conclusions you're like what wait what how do they it's insane Sometimes listening to stuff like this, I know you just want to take a shower. You want to cleanse your soul, cleanse your system. Maybe today it's mango, not the rotten one, a nice ripe mango. Maybe you're thinking rose, pear, eucalyptus to decompress. These are just some of the amazing scents that are available with Function of Beauty's customized shampoo and conditioner. Yes. Okay. You guys recently saw me. I just got a haircut and I am strict on maintaining it, making sure I don't get split ends, making sure that it stays voluminous, full, shiny, especially because I just chopped off so many inches of it. And that is why I am obsessed with Function of Beauty. They're the world leader in fully customized hair care. They create your unique formula, straight up unique to you, based on a short but thorough quiz to give your hair everything that it needs to just look and feel its best. Every product is sulfate and paraben free, vegan, cruelty free, and there's over 60,000 real five-star customer reviews. I mean, people are absolutely wild about the fragrances and for really good reason. My hair has never smelled so amazing. Sometimes I'll turn around really quickly and I'll be like, what's that smell? It's me. Okay, sorry. (laughs) You can try tropical mango, sweet peach, crisp pear. They've got lavender, rose, eucalyptus. And if you're like my mom who's really sensitive to scents, you can go unscented as well. You guys already know that I tried tropical mango. Not rotten, thankfully. And this tropical mango makes me feel like I'm on vacation. Every time that I whip my hair around, I'm like, wow. She smells like a private island. She smells like alcoholic beverages on the beach if you're 21 and up. (laughs) So turn your beauty routine into an aromatherapy session, a tropical getaway. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash rotten to take your quiz and save 20% off of your first order. This applies to their full range of customized hair, skin, and body products. That's functionofbeauty.com slash rotten and let them know that you heard about it from here and get 20% off your order, functionofbeauty.com Rotten. 
So who is Franklin Floyd? We're going to call him Frank. He was born in Barnesville, Georgia, the youngest of five kids. He just had like this really rough childhood. His dad was abusive, raging alcoholic. Eventually, his dad dies of liver failure. So they're, you know, being left to raise, be raised by a single mom who thought maybe this isn't the best. Maybe I should drop off all five kids at a local church, like a local orphanage, because I can't do this. So they get dropped off and Frank and his siblings hated this place. They said it's like a mental asylum rather than an orphanage. I mean, the people who ran it, they, they felt like they were evil. They would practically beat you for anything that you did. During the free time, what would you do? You wouldn't rest. You wouldn't try to find a hobby. You would be out in the fields picking fruits and vegetables in the sweltering Georgia heat. Ten kids in a room, family separated because it's all done in age groups. Frank wasn't allowed with his older siblings. It was miserable. The mom, she was only allowed to visit one to two times a year. I mean, some might say it might have been harder for the Floyd siblings because they knew that their mom was alive, but she wasn't with them. Mm. So it was like this really weird abandonment situation going on. But Franklin, I mean, he was considered smart, intelligent, but he had a little bit of like a feminine quality about him. So all these other boys that would just bully him, they would pick on him. One day, Frank tells the teachers, hey, I was uh, dragged outside by a big group of boys and they sodomized me by an object. And they didn't care. They literally didn't care. They said, oh, okay, cool. But we didn't see it. So no witness, no crime. Bye. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. Uh-huh. And uh, he stayed there for the next 10 years where he would be punished for everything. If you were caught smoking, they would force you to eat cigarette butts. If you were caught masturbating, your hand would be shoved into a hot pot of water. A hot pot. A pot of hot water. Sorry. Um, all his siblings, they left one by one because they were turning 18 years old and he was the last. He was the youngest. So finally he leaves. He's under the care of his older sister, but even she kicks him out. Her husband was like, I don't know what this Frank dude is doing, your brother, but he's given weird vibes around our kids and I don't like it. So then Frank goes on this mission to search for his mom, finds her in a different state working as a sex worker. So this traumatized him. He starts drifting around. He gets arrested for breaking into a Sears. Why? Because he's trying to steal a gun. When the police come, there's a shootout and Frank was shot in the stomach, but he survived. So he gets some jail time. He's released back in Georgia. Decides he's going to go to a bowling alley. And that's when he kidnaps a four-year-old girl. Took her to the woods and he raped her. Four years old holy cow this guy is insane the police found semen stains and bite marks on her genitals he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years but he escaped from prison he stole a car robbed a bank for seven thousand dollars and he was captured again so this time they're like okay on top of your rape charge we're gonna charge you an additional 15 years because you escaped from prison but does he stop? No, he tries to escape again. So him and his other inmates, they steal a prison guard truck and they crash it into the gate. The whole plan was to crash it through the gate till they were free, right? They got the gate open, but the car stopped going. It was broken. So now they're just sitting in this prison guard's truck. So they were sitting ducks. They get arrested, rearrested on prison grounds and an additional five year sentence. And he was transferred to federal prison maximum security where he was non-stop raped by other inmates because he has a child molestation he has a child rape conviction it was so bad that franklin climbed to the roof of the prison building and tried to commit suicide but the guards talked him out of it so they sent him to a new prison 
this time he was like, I got to be smarter about it. So he gets a daddy, has a prison protector, focuses on his GED, starts studying law. That's where he met a bunch of prison buddies that would later help provide connections on the outside, right? Not great people. Frank included. None of these people are great. He gets released and attempted another kidnapping of a woman at a gas station. He was arrested, but he was allowed bail. I mean, they knew his criminal background. He attempted to kidnap another woman, this pedophile rapist kidnapper. But he was allowed out on bail and he never showed up to the rest of the hearings. So at that point, he was considered a fugitive of the law. So for over 16 years, he went under the radar until he gave his social security number to the insurance company because he wanted $80,000. The way that he would do it, he was going to these cemeteries. He would stake it out, pick some names that he liked off of the tombstones, would use their identity. So Brandon Williams met Sandra, befriended the eldest daughter, Suzanne, who's about four years old, and kidnapped Suzanne while Sandra was in jail. Moved around nonstop with Suzanne, assuming more fake IDs. Most of Suzanne's life, she went by Sharon. And the whole time, she was sexually, mentally, physically abused by Frank. Eventually, Sharon would leave the South and would forcibly become Frank's wife under the identity of Tanya before she would end up dead on the side of the road. So he kidnapped Suzanne for sexual reasons, raised her as his daughter that he abused and tortured sexually. And during all of this, this is the crazy thing that even FBI agents, according to the book, like they don't know how this is possible. Despite all of this, Sharon grew up to be an exceptional person, a remarkable woman. She was smart. Her personality was great. She made friends. She wanted those friends to succeed. I mean, she literally how? People can't even do this in a loving, nice home environment. Yeah, exactly. How? She just was that smart. She was able to excel. This was like her escape mentally was to just study. And I think maybe it gave her hope. Like, I'm going to work for NASA. I'm going to have a different life. Anytime Suzanne would get attached to anyone, um, especially males, they would move. It's just a weird thing. So they get married. Um, They ask later. They ask Frank. Why'd you guys get married? That's weird. Oh, well, for the fa- for the sake of Michael, Sharon had another son. And I was like, well, this kid, he needs a dad, respectably, because the real biological dad didn't want to be around. That's how he's framed it. But we're going to get to the real truth. So this is all unraveling. Meanwhile, at um, the Passion Strip Club, Connie, her co-worker, is determined to find Tanya's family. She's determined. So they, ha- they get a bunch of people involved. You know, the manager is like, well, I don't know. I think that she said that her parents died in a car crash. No, I heard that her parents and her just don't get along anymore because of her job. Wait, I heard her mom died of cancer. Okay, wait. On her application here, did you, did you get like a maiden name? Maybe we can find her parents. Yeah, her maiden name is Tadlock. So they call the mom. They found her. Um, the mom of the Tadlocks, right? Hi, uh, I was just wondering if you know a Tanya Dawn Tadlock? Yes, uh, I'm her mother. Oh, uh, ma'am, I have some bad news. Tanya's dead, and she was killed in a car accident last week. What? I'm sorry, but your daughter's dead. Um, I don't know if this is kind of some kind of sick joke. But my daughter's been dead for 20 years. She died when she was like 18 months old from pneumonia. 
So this is when her coworkers realize, wait a minute, something's not going on. So like I said, remember, Frank loved to go to these cemeteries, yes. get names. So now they're confused. Everyone's getting confused. Meanwhile, the FBI just want to arrest Franklin, okay? They don't know the depth of his crimes. They just know that he's a fugitive. Mm. They don't know that he kidnapped Suzanne, Sharon is Tanya. They don't know any of this. They arrest him in Augusta, Georgia, and he was going by another name. So they could they just arrest him for being a felony fugitive. They could not say that he was the cause of Tanya's murder. Nothing linked him to the crime scene. To make it even harder, the FBI knew that Tanya was dead. The real Tanya. So they had no idea who this woman in the hospital was. They had no idea at this mm-hmm. point. So but they're who, investigating. Though. They're investigating, but they don't know. And Frank is not trying to tell them. So it's just bombshell after bombshell at this point for the FBI. The first one being that Frank, the whole thing, he just wants his son back. Michael, get him out of foster care. But when they run the paternity test on Michael, Franklin is not the father. That complicates things. And the Michael's foster family, the Beans, they just don't want to give him up. I mean, this guy is a kidnapper. He's a pedophile. No way. Even if Franklin was the biological dad, there's no way. This is this is horrendous. So Frank, for the rest of the next 33 months, he would send it in prison for being a federal fugitive. Now, when he gets out, the only thing he's thinking about is reuniting with his son, Michael. Very strange. What do you mean? He's done with his sentencing? Yeah, after 33 months. Are you kidding me? This dude is... Yeah. Because I don't understand how he's keep doing this, escaping, getting arrested, assaulting her, like doing all of these things. And he's still out. 33 months for being a federal fugitive for 16 years, but they couldn't pin any murders or anything on him. It's still an open case, but they couldn't pin it on him yet. So he gets released and he also receives the $80,000 from insurance. I don't know how, okay? I, I don't know how any of this... You know, there are so many good people in this world that you just sometimes look at their life story and you're like, it's just one bad thing after another. What is going on? This person deserves happiness. But then you look at people like him and you're like, how? How does he just have the weirdest twisted luck possible? So he has all this cash. He had the means, he had a motive, and he's trying to do something bad. At this point, Michael's like six years old now. And because of the Bean parents, he's doing really well. They're even trying to adopt him. He was talking, making friends, being a normal kid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Frank the whole time is like, how do I get my parental rights back? I want this kid. I want this kid. And he starts hurling these baseless accusations at the Bean family saying like, oh, they choke Michael all the time. Michael told me. The police would ask Michael and he would be like, no, I never said that. I mean, this just terrified everyone. And eventually the stress was too much for Franklin. So Frank does something drastic. He had a job as a maintenance man in an apartment building, which means that he has the master keys to every single unit in the apartment building. So what does he do? What kind of background check? (laughs) Oh, my God. So what does he do? He uses the master key to sneak in to a woman's apartment and starts rummaging through her st- rummaging through her stuff, grabs a pair of panties and starts sniffing them. And at that moment that he's sniffing her panties, she comes in through the door. So she was meeting her boyfriend at her apartment and she happened to come home first. And she starts screaming, tries to run out, but Frank tackles her to the ground, has a knife. So she's like, you know, wiggling around, resulted in all of her arms getting sliced up by the knife. And he kept saying, your boyfriend paid me to do this. And at that moment, her boyfriend walks in through the door, tackles Frank, holds him down until the police arrive. So the police arrest Frank and the whole time he's screaming, I'm getting framed. I'm getting framed. Uh, Frank, we found the pair of panties in your back pocket. Now I'm getting framed, I tell you. 
that doesn't make any sense. Who would frame you for this? But he gets out on bail. Oh my God. Oh my God. He knew at this point that no matter what happened, even if he wasn't sentenced to a long time in prison, which, wait, side note, what happened to three strikes you're out? There's so many people with like three minor marijuana charges that are in for life. Maybe that didn't exist at this time. That wasn't even that long ago. Anyways, he gets out on bail and he knows that he needs to get Michael because either he's going to go to prison for a really long time or he's never going to get his parental rights. Why does he care about Michael so much when he's not even the dad? He likes little kids. Oh. So that day, six-year-old Michael follows his routine, eats his breakfast, talks to his foster parents, gets on the school bus, and goes to, like, the first grade. But guess who also happened to be at that school? Frank. He entered the school and patiently waited in the principal's room. Oh, uh, the principal will see you now. Okay, great. Sits down, pulls out a gun. And according to the interviews done by Matt Birkbeck, this is how it all played out. Listen, this is going to be something that's really hard for me to do. I've been, I've been grieving for four years. I'm ready to die. I want you to help me get my son. He's talking to the principal. If you don't help me, you're not going to live because I, I don't want to live. People get killed because they don't care. And you know, that's me. I don't care. So the principal's weighing his options. Either I listen to him or I risk 500 students in a violent shootout. Who's your son? Michael. He's in the first grade. So they walk down to his class together, pull him out of class, and Michael comes out quiet, confused, and looks really scared. So Frank tells the principal, we're going to use your car. And all three of them get in and they leave the school. They drive to a wooded area and they tie up the principal to a tree, handcuff his hands around the back of the tree, put duct tape on his mouth, and Frank tells him, I'll call someone two hours later so that we get a two-hour head start. I'll tell them where you are, and then you can tell them everything that happened. You can be honest. I don't care. And he leaves. So this guy's watching them drive off together, and he starts trying to wiggle out of his handcuffs. His glasses slipped off of his face because of the sweat. His duct tape started slipping off, so he's, like, calling for help the whole time. Ironically, it would still be two hours until someone came to help him. Now, the FBI are involved. They're getting crazy with this now. Frank fugitive wanted look at his criminal history just kidnapped michael so with the criminal profile of frank i mean they think we got to find him quick michael's going to be safe until someone like frank thinks that he's a liability they give michael 10 days max to live under the care of frank because frank is like the type of guy once under pressure realizes you're not worth it he's going to kill you like he's all about himself but because Frank is a convicted pedophile and Frank has this really strange obsession with Michael, like you were mentioning. I mean, the FBI think that there's some sort of sexual motive in this. So this means that they got to act fast nationally to a certain degree. I mean, the FBI was involved. They were reaching out to all of the different divisions, all of the different locations. And that is when they find a truck in Dallas. Now, this Dallas truck was actually taken from Oklahoma City. So, I mean, this makes sense. They start in Oklahoma City, right? They find pictures taped to the belly of the truck, like under the truck. 97 pictures. What? Mostly young girls, toddlers to teenagers that were nude or sexually explicit. So I'm talking full on CP. Little girls dressed in lingerie. 12 year old girls dressed like very provocatively on a boat posing. Kind of, um... (sighs) Pictures that was the same girl as she was growing up. So from the age of like four to her teenage years, but all of them, even from the age of four, was very sexually explicit. 
and the FBI confirmed that this was Tanya. What do you mean tape at the bottom of the truck? Like this was his, the only thing he cared about. That's what the FBI believes. And he believed that's the safest spot yeah. to hide them. And then he would come back for them. Oh, the car was just left yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Abandoned. Abandoned. Oh my gosh. So because they took if he gets the arrested and they find that. Right, that's right, like, right. So they took the car yeah. in and then they found these yeah. photos and they were like, oh my God, this is the dude. Yeah. Which side note, to make the story worse, um, there's an allegation that Franklin's friends were allowed to molest Suzanne. Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya as well when she was young. So she was not just tormented. Under Are you going to talk about those cops, off-duty cops? Oh, yeah, I don't know what happened to them. That's insane I mean, to me. I mean, they probably didn't know. Oh, so you're saying that he just paid them. Yeah, and they probably just thought that he genuinely was um, Clarence Hughes. Gotcha. So that seemed to be okay. like his like go-to was to try to befriend cops at local mm. bars just so he could, you know, seem like he has a way in. That's so funny that don't you like think about that like all the dynamic is all up here so messed up pictures of um like i said you know sharon she'd be wearing these high heels leopard skin tight outfits but what was interesting to the fbi was there were a bunch of pictures of another woman who was in her late teens early 20s naked tied up blindfolded and severely bleat beaten like her lips were swollen she had a bloody nose she was posed really explicitly like with her genitals exposed and around her um genitals there were burn marks and they felt like these were bad enough that this woman was near death and this was a snuff film photo that's what it looked like it was not sharon but who is this woman eventually they would find out So they find these pictures and it also somehow leads them to find Frank in Kentucky. The FBI like went full out. They dressed up as FedEx drivers because he got a job at a used car lot. This guy was working. This guy had a, he was a used car salesman. What's going on? FedEx drivers pull up to the dealership. They pretend to give him a package and then they just swarm the place. The FBI just swarms it. They arrest him. But Michael is nowhere to be found. Where's Michael? He's fine, but he's not here. So they start going through his stuff. They find a bus ticket from Atlanta to Louisville, which is where he was found. And it was only for one passenger. So this leads the FBI to believe that whatever happened to Michael happened in Atlanta, Georgia. Then they found pictures in his wallet of Sharon when she was a teenager. Michael as a baby naked in a tub and another picture of an unidentified woman. Now, what's interesting is in his address book. Do you remember that girl that he kidnapped from the bowling alley and raped when she was four years old? Yes. He had the name and current address of that woman who has now grown up that he raped decades ago in his address book. And he still to this day has not revealed why. Well, I guess we can't assume. Yeah. So he gets taken into the FBI office, refuses to talk about Sharon or Michael. I mean, the only thing that he would say about Sharon is that, oh, she's so smart. She was such a good kid, went to church every Sunday. But in the same breath, he'd say, well, she's a whore now and she ruined her life. The FBI try to get more information out of him. Sharon gave birth three times, at least that, you know, Frank had fessed up to. The first son was the one that Jennifer knew about. She she gave him up to Texas, a couple in Texas. Michael, they found the biological father of Michael, who was a boyfriend of Sharon's at one point. So this is the missing kid, Michael. And then a third child, a daughter, who was also adopted in a different state. Which is crazy because Matt Birkbeck found who this daughter was because they reached out to him by email. So, I mean, Matt Birkbeck really helped solve this case because that daughter could give DNA. 
Oh my god! So she saw the book first. Yes. Well, her adoptive mom saw the book、wow. and said, "I think it might be us. We don't want to come out to the press, but we trust you. Would it help if we gave the FBI, you know, my daughter's DNA, who is a biologically, you know, Sharon Suzanne Tanya's daughter?" And I think what's even more amazing about this book, and you guys really need to check out both of them, is that it—I mean—it's not the world's most well-known book. So the people who really read this, they—I mean, everyone who read this felt such an emotional, felt what I felt like, just this emotional sting of like, I gotta do something.、Mm. Like, I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. the fact that this book was just selling all over the place, which. Honestly, it was. I mean, it was in Europe too. It was translated into different languages. But it's not like a Harry Potter book. It's not like、mm-hmm. everyone and their mom knew about this book. So of course you get information. No, it was the fact that it touched every single person who read that book. So they reached out to Matt Birkbeck and they gave the DNA. So, anyways, the FBI is asking, "Why did you marry Sharon under the name of Tanya? Like that's weird. You say that you didn't do anything sexual with her, even though we know that you did. Why did you marry her? That's creepy." Well, because Michael needed a last name, that's why. The FBI found proof that that's not why, and it all starts in Tampa, Florida, years ago. Police were called to a construction site. A construction worker was peeing when he finds this volleyball, just like in the water. Volleyball, kicks it. It's not a volleyball. There's eye sockets. It was a head. It was a skull. So the police rush over. They find bones, hair, teeth, skull, clothing, jewelry, everything. This woman was a young female between the ages of 16 and 20. She had been shot to death, but this was a Jane Doe. They had no idea who this woman was. So they entered all of this into the database. But that's it. They couldn't even get the time of death. And then randomly, years later, the FBI reaches out to them and says, "Hey, the FBI wants to meet up with the Tampa Police Department." They show them pictures of Sharon, the unidentified woman. In those pictures, the other woman that looked like she had been beaten and tortured,、mm-hmm. and they give them the whole story of Frank. They don't know the full story of like who Sharon is yet, but you know, putting the pieces together, we think that your Tampa, Florida woman, Jane Doe, might be this woman in the pictures. Why? How? Based on because、what? Frank and Tanya had spent some time in Tampa. The rumor was that Frank was involved in the murder of this woman. Right. So th- there's a rumor. They start looking. Okay. Well, they go through the missing persons report. They start talking to witnesses. They pin her down to be a Cheryl Ann Camesso. Her height, her weight, everything fit Jane Doe. So they compare the pictures. Eerily similar. So they run dental checks, and it was Cheryl and Camesso. So what's the connection here? Like, how did Cheryl know Sharon or Warren or you know Frank, Michael, whatever, whatever the fork? How did how did she end up murdered? So Sharon and Cheryl danced at a club together in Tampa, Florida, called Mons Venus, and this was a this was an intense club. So there was a lot of pimps around the club at all times, but it had wealthy enough clientele that the girls were making pretty good money, right? Now, no husband or boyfriend were allowed inside, no matter what. You will get kicked out. That's the rule. But, but Warren is Sharon's dad, so he's allowed in. So they knew her as Sharon, not Tanya. So Sharon is dancing. Warren would come in and sit there and just watch his daughter dance. So they kicked him out because they're like, "I get it, you're not a boyfriend, but you're so weird. Who watches your their daughter just strip at a strip club? That's weird." So they kick him out. So he would just sit in the parking lot waiting for her to come out every single night. People who saw their interactions thought they were just so strange. Warren would constantly tell Sharon, "You need to get a boob job," and he would pull on her nipples. As a way of like teasing her, that's what witness statements said. Okay,、um, well, that's what these witnesses told Matt. 
He was obsessed with sex, wanted Sharon to be like a porn star, tried to convince her that they would make so much money, even wanted Sharon and Cheryl to like film a video on the beach and he would be the videographer. They would like rub oil on each other. Like he was obsessed. So at this club is when Sharon got that boob job and she said it was incredibly painful. They went to a cheap doctor that gave her the boob job and butt implants for only $1,500. And Warren would go around asking people, pointing at his daughter don't her tits look nice look at her ass in those shorts it was at this club that sharon became pregnant with her third child the one that would also be put up for adoption and she was about to get fired but a lot of the uh, customers at the strip club loved a pregnant dancer so yeah there became a clientele a niche clientele for her so she stayed but slowly rumors started circulating so the first being that Cheryl was lured in by Warren. Warren. So Cheryl, the co-worker, the one that ends up dead in Tampa, Warren just really liked her. Felt like they were dating. She didn't agree. So he would always ask her out to go on his boat that he would rent. And one day she decides to go. But he made these huge promises. Listen, get on my boat. We'll take some pictures of you. I know people. They're going to get you on the cover of Playboy magazine. So she gets excited. Gets on the boat. Warren tries to have sex with her. She politely declines and he punches her in the mouth. So she's like, what the freaking fork is going on? He leaves the area to grab a fishing net and starts running towards her. I mean, she's terrified he's going to choke me out with a fishing net. So she jumps off the boat, swims a quarter mile to shore, and she was pissed. Cheryl was pissed, okay? So in order to get revenge, she calls CPS and tells them, hey, Sharon is making money at the club and doesn't need those welfare checks. She's making a good money at the club. This results in Warren, skirt skirt, driving up to the club, trying to kidnap Cheryl in front of the other dancers and the bouncer, like straight up trying to pull her into his car. They pull Cheryl out. He does not kidnap her, but he leaves screaming that he's going to get revenge. So as this is happening, rumors start circulating that Sharon is sleeping with her dad. Now, some of the girls, they saw this as abuse. Some of it saw it as incest. Either way, the rumors were out and Sharon was getting wind of it. Two months later, Sharon vanishes. They suspect, okay, well, she probably left because of the rumors. But either way, we're kind of busy with something else. Cheryl had vanished as well, which is strange. Cheryl had no reason to vanish. Now, the FBI believed that Tanya and um, Clarence, so Sharon and Warren, they got married as Tanya and Clarence. They didn't Mm -hmm. get married for Michael. They got married because Frank probably believed that she could never testify if they were married because you can't be forced to testify against your spouse legally. So basically, police can't ask her. Yeah, basically, because they're legally married. So they moved to Oklahoma where Sharon is now Tanya and dancing at Passions Club until she died. So the police suspect that Tanya was killed because first, she was planning on leaving. And secondly, with Frank's profile, he seemed more interested in young Michael. Like Sharon was just too old for him. She was only good when she was making money so that like she's useful if she's making money. But now that she's trying to run away, she wants out of this. She's no longer useful. So she has to die. All the while that this is unfolding, Jennifer, remember Sharon's best friend from high school? Mm-hmm had grown up, never stopped looking for Sharon. Her and her family, never. I mean, they were just dedicated. Like, why Why doesn't she want to talk to us? Like, I wonder where she is now. When Jennifer got married, she wanted Sharon to be her maid of honor. So when they met, Jennifer was going through a lot. She was smoking a lot of weed, getting in with a bad crowd. And Sharon was the reason she straightened her life out. Sharon kept telling her, you got to study. 
you gotta go to college. Don't do this. Wow. And now that she did go to college, graduated, found a nice man, started a family, she just kept remembering Sharon's like encouraging voice, like just the whole way through. So she wanted, you know, to find Sharon and ask her to be her maid of honor, go back to the old days. But it didn't happen. And Jennifer moved to San Diego. Uh, you know, randomly, she would still think about Sharon. And then finally, her mom called. We found Sharon. She's so happy. She's screaming. She's like up and down, just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I want to talk to her. How? Where? What's going on? Jenny, Sharon is dead. She died four years ago. She's on the news. And Jenny, you have to call the FBI. What are you talking about, Mom? Warren wasn't her dad. His real name is Franklin Floyd, and she was kidnapped when she was a little girl. They think that Warren killed her. And it gets worse. Do you remember that little boy that Sharon was telling you about, how she had a son that she was going to keep? Well, Warren kidnapped him, and the FBI don't know where that little boy is. And maybe we can help, but you need to call the FBI. So Jennifer is flown to the FBI location in Oklahoma City to talk to them, and she starts from the beginning. From their whole friendship, Sharon moves away, just everything. And she agreed to testify at any trials because, I mean, her and her whole family, they were, the FBI loved them because there was something about Jennifer, no matter what, she had this thing. Like, you know, because a lot of the times people will bring up the fact that women are sex workers. Oh, well, Tanya was a sex worker. They might try to bring it up to weaken their case because, I don't know, their logic is skewed. They're messed up people. But Jennifer, she fought for her friend. Like just, she was passionate for Sharon. So she was a star witness. And uh, her whole family, they were just wrecked with guilt. They just didn't know how they couldn't have seen it. Why they couldn't have done something. If Sharon had even said one little thing, they would have done something. Did Sharon not trust them enough? Like they would just have these thoughts forever. Jennifer would have to take weekly therapy sessions, get on anti-anxiety. Like it was, it was bad. So meanwhile, the FBI is still searching for Michael and Frank just kept screaming at them. You guys are going to find Michael dead. Have fun dragging Michael's dead body out of a creek. So the FBI, they believe that Michael probably is dead, but they don't know how to find him. Frank had talked to a lot of people. Some witnesses say that Frank told them he threw Michael off a bridge. Some people say that he killed them, drowned him, like all of these different things. But regardless, even without a body, they had enough and they were going to go to trial. So this whole thing is so messed up when you think about it. Frank kidnapped Suzanne, raised her as his daughter, Sharon, married her as Tanya, killed her, and then kidnapped her son, Michael. So the trial takes place and Frank wants to represent himself. The judge allowed it, but appointed a co-counsel, which this is the sick thing. Frank would then have access to any and all evidence, including all 93 pictures entered into evidence. Because as a defendant, you might not get access to this, but as an attorney, you do. Wow. So he had all the files, which became important later because when Matt Birkbeck actually went to go interview him in prison, Frank just let him have that. Like, and he was able to find important documents that weren't released publicly through these files to get the full picture of this story. Like he did a lot. OK, this you go read those books. He did so much. So um, it became important and helpful later. But the fact that like he was his own attorney just disgusting he opted for a no jury trial and at the end franklin stood up and said and i quote oh god don't let these people stand between me and the love of my son don't let them destroy the bond between us let my son come home this is not the case of a stranger taking a child this is the act of a loving father 
the judge did not give a fork. He was found guilty on all charges, sentenced to 52 years without the possibility of parole. Not a life sentence, but he was old, so he's probably going to die in prison. Later, he would be sentenced um, to death for Cheryl's murder. So he would eventually, you know, be on death row. And when Matt Birkbeck interviewed him in prison, he said, I'm no Ted Bundy. Nobody, no crime about Cheryl's murder. He said nobody, no crime? Yeah, or or about Michael's murder. Nobody, no crime. But he also said, I'm no Ted Bundy. So he went away for prison for a really long time. And then years later, FBI went to interview him again. And he finally admitted that he killed Michael and said that they were in the car in Atlanta and Michael would not stop crying, just screaming and wanted Mrs. Bean, his foster mom. And he just got pissed. I'm the one that raised you. Tried to shut him up, strangled him, shot him twice in the back of his head and then threw him out on a highway. Now, the police searched this area, but it had been so long. It was also a rural area that was known for having a lot of feral pigs that would eat anything in sight. So they weren't going to find him. And that is where we're at. I mean, he is still alive. And for some reason, Wikipedia lists him as a child actor, which is weird. Are you sure? I mean, that's what it says. Wikipedia lists him as a child actor. Are you sure that's him? Yes. Criminal penalty, death, convictions, murder of Cheryl Ann Camesso, kidnapping of Michael Anthony Hughes. Maybe they're trying to say child molester? I don't know. Maybe he had a child acting face. I have no idea. That was weird. So he's alive. Now, this is where it gets crazy. Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya. She had a half sisters, half siblings, remember? Well, they didn't really ever know what happened to Suzanne for the longest time. Every time they asked their mom, like, hey, I was old enough to know that I had an older sister. What happened to her? Oh, just don't worry about it. None of your business. They would always shut it down. So these siblings, they were getting annoyed. They started looking, couldn't find anything, couldn't find their sibling anywhere. Eventually, Suzanne's uncle and Suzanne's half-siblings were recommended um, Matt Birkbeck's books. And that's how they found out the full story of what happened, because Sandra would not tell them. And when you read the book, you get like the full, because he talked to these family members, and you Mm -hmm. get their full ride of emotions. Suzanne's dad, biological dad, had no idea what happened to her. Found out through the books as well. And these people reached out to Matt Birkbeck. So you get like the full, I mean, because these are heavy, heavy emotions. You get the full in-depth look at how they responded and how they felt and, you know, all these things. But they had this really beautiful moment. So Matt Birkbeck, the journalist, he decided that, um, so for the longest time, Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya's tombstone just said Tanya. So with the approval of Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya's daughter that was adopted to a different family, he um, surprised the whole family and everyone involved in this case, even Michael's foster parents, surprised them with a new tombstone with her name and with an inscription. And finally, she would be laid to rest. So the books go in depth on this, but it was just talking about how um, back then they didn't really have a database for missing children. So in like the 70s, not really. They didn't have Amber Alerts. They didn't have anything. So their idea, I mean, Matt was saying, like, how do we know that this hasn't happened to other people? Maybe not as crazy, Mm -hmm. not as diabolical, but think of all the kids that could have been kidnapped and raised as someone else's for whatever sick, sinister reason. And they don't know and we don't know. Exactly. It's just so dark. 
So what are your thoughts on this? This one was a heavy one. This one was a dark one. It was emotional. There was so much going on. But I hope you guys enjoyed. And I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.